Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Gingesh Ganesan of PureNova. PureNova is a company that helps clients clean up, manage, and empower the use of their data. And with that, here's my interview with Gingesh. Hello, Gingesh. Hello. Great to How be here. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you. Good. Glad to hear. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for taking the time for, uh, to chat today. Gengesh Ganesa of PureNova. Tell us about PureNova. PureNova, we are a, a software company. Uh, primarily, you know, broadly, we'd be categorized as someone uh, serving in the fintech space. Very specifically, what we do is build a platform which allows business users to get business metrics out of the different applications, uh, data sources, workflows, and processes that they have and then automatically run data quality and process integrity rules on those. Uh, data quality, we know what typically that means, you know, making sure that your data is correct, complete, consistent. Process integrity is something that allows you to verify whether the workflow steps and processes that you've been taking in your applications and systems are all correct. And we run both data quality and process integrity uh, checks on the data. And then we allow you to uh, take actions based on uh, the results of that data quality and process checks. So what we would do is tell you, not only is this data quality issue showing up, what should you do to fix this data quality issue? And who should you alert? What dashboard should you update? And what other external third-party actions uh, and notifications do you need to create? So it's sort of an end-to-end platform for both uh, data-related insights and mm -hmm. the take actions on those. I was going to say, it almost sounds like, an, for lack of a better term, an operating system for data in itself. That's right. And uh, that's yep. kind of how we would uh, phrase it and characterize it. So it's a great way of putting it. Excellent. Now, for listeners, uh, we've um, here's the thing: data may not sound like the sexiest topic, but I still suggest you stick around because I'll tell you right now, this is this is an important topic. Is good, God knows, the the biggest obstacle when we try to talk about anything a company can do in terms of modernization and, and doing something cutting edge. Data quality is the freaking albatross around the neck the neck of every company. And it is not great. So having companies like Piranova that basically help not only clean that up, but harness it and keep it clean. Yeah, like, and I know you guys closed a couple of big funding rounds. There's a reason for it. And it's because of the scale of the problem. So let's start talking about that. So you are, quote unquote, a fintech, but really data-driven fintech, data management-driven fintech. So tell me about what it looks like to work with you. I am a large, clunky old bank, and I have these enterprise servers running off my favorite language ever, COBOL. And I come to a company like you guys and say, help, and we say, help us, like our data is a mess. Like, first off, how bad does it normally look? And what does the process look for, for onboarding and getting going with you? All right. So how bad does it look? Well, you know, it depends on various financial institutions. And as you mm -hmm. mentioned, many of the old school banks, large financial institutions, multinationals like that uh, have more problems than you can actually imagine, simply because they have some extremely modern Yep, they have some extremely yeah. modern, uh, doing state-of-the-art stuff. Their websites look great. Uh, they've upgraded themselves to the mobile and uh, the connected world now. So on the surface, they've done a lot of things. But behind the scenes, they have tens of thousands of people running around and uh, trying to fix various things, making many things work. And I'll give you a very simple example uh, that'll kind of give you an understanding of how this happens. Let's say you open a new checking account at one of the large banks today. Even today, the process is very clunky. Of course, we all know opening an account, a bank account means you need to go with many forms of identification. Maybe you need to make an in-person visit even today. Uh, you can do it remotely, but it's kind of complex. You may be able to do it in person. And then the account won't be active right away. If you try to deposit some money into that account or try to move money into that account from some other account or ask someone else to deposit money into that account the very first time, they'll take three days. 
And you're like, mm-hmm. why does it take three days? What are you doing for three days? The simple answer is that there's a lot of complex and intricate workflows today that are highly manual. And so most of these large financial institutions struggle with many, many such semi-manual, semi-automated and fully manual processes. And therefore, they uh, have some serious data quality issues. And many of these financial institutions also built a lot of their original architecture and systems before the modern internet before the modern, you know, sort of the new world, Web 2.0 world came in, forgetting yeah. the web world, right? So Yeah, before, AWS, before Amazon existed, let alone AWS existed. That's right. And let alone things like mobile and things like that weren't even thought of. APIs, you know, this three-letter acronym, no one even knew what it meant. Yeah, and it didn't even exist, right? So it just was at a time that many of these systems, architectures and applications and workflows and processes were built at that time. So the challenges are real and continue to be real. So, so that's sort of the first part of uh, the thing to your question, answer to your question. The second part is how do they actually sort of work with us? So given that we ourselves are an end-to-end data management platform where we, you know, help them organize their data, govern their data, help them with data quality, process integrity, give them metrics, allow them to take actions. The biggest challenge is how do you onboard data into our platform? And do you need to onboard data into our platform? Do they need to keep another copy of their data in our platform? So these are some of the challenging sort of early questions that come. Now, we have a model where we allow both on-prem and, uh, you know, sort of cloud uh, installations for our clients, primarily because in the fintech, uh, the legacy financial institutions, in the example you gave, large financial institutions, typically run on-prem. At least a lot of their core applications run on-prem. Slowly changing, but it's it's a slow change. Yes, it's a slow change. So we we offer, uh, you know, on-prem, but we, we actually, the platform is built as a hybrid cloud platform. So we uh, support on-prem, but uh, the platform itself is built as a, as a hybrid cloud platform. It can run on-prem, it can run on a private cloud, and it can also run in a public cloud. And you can run in this hybrid mode, so you, large financial institution, can start on-prem, and then over time, as they are migrating their applications and products uh, to the cloud, uh, the platform is already ready, built in, built, uh, ready-made uh, with all the features. That's kind of how the process is. Now, a couple of more detailed answers are simply... Mm-hmm. You don't have to onboard all the data into our platform. You can actually have data in your existing, you know, many of them have had data initiatives over the last uh, several years. So let's mm-hmm. say they have their own data lake, uh, like a Hadoop, uh, you know, environment. They can keep their data there and our application and our stack essentially runs side by side with it, uh, leaves the data on their own lake and then provides them with all the insight met- insights, metrics and actions. So we only create the insights out of that. And we can store the results back in their own platform itself. So that way we're not creating another copy of the data, uh, which itself in some cases can yeah. be fun. I'll take the time to just briefly explain for the audience who doesn't understand this, but a data lake is basically, think of it as a giant repository of different forms of data. And instead of leading, leaving things sitting in a specific program or a specific server, you kind of take a, basically it's a, it's a warehouse of all the data for the company in one place. And only the things that need to draw upon different pieces of data can draw upon that. So very, very popular trend in data management, um, probably the right one altogether, but it's, it's, not some, it's something that was not possible under previous architecture and it's very difficult to transition to now without the likes of yourself helping out. So that's what it looks like. So once they're done, what are the kind of payoffs that they get like right out of the gate? So you managed to get this all uh, put in the right spot with your architecture sitting over top. What happens next? 
what happens next is that simply they get answers to some key business questions. Uh, some of the questions that they have are which are the sources and applications uh, that have data quality issues? And uh, what are my data quality trends over time across these particular sources and applications? For example, which sources are degrading in terms of data quality over time and which ones are improving over time? And what is the mean time uh, between a resolution of data quality issues in each one of these systems and uh, what are systematically what are rules and processes that are failing more often than others these are the kinds of insights they get once they bring our platform on what this allows them to do is immediately kind of um, allocate resources even prioritize their own digital transformation needs. If they realize that some processes are causing more data quality issues, more process integrity issues, then clearly those are the ones to focus on. But as you had earlier mentioned, in a complex and a financial institution is made of many different legal entities have hundreds, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of software application systems and databases. And trying to find data quality and process issues and trying to make clean data available to downstream users like regular reporting, financial reporting, client reporting, all of which need clean data, is looking for a needle in a haystack. And the haystack itself is spread over a huge farm. And sometimes you have to go miles across to go uh, from one bond to the other, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And that's sort of the analogy, I would say, in these complex enterprises with many legal entities, they have many restrictions as well. Many people cannot go to this part of the farm. Many parts of uh, the data lake are not available for all users. Complex permissioning is needed. European regulations uh, are very, very strict more recently over the last couple of years based on GDPR, which means if you have data quality issues and you're investigating them and the investigation results in some data leaving Europe, then that's a big no-no now. You can't have it leave. So you have yeah. to have all the investigation and resolution teams locally, which may or may not be possible in some scenarios because of how the companies have been structured. And in the US, there are complex laws. And in, now when you throw in legal entities in Japan, Asia, South America, everyone having different regulations, you can imagine the complexity of the kind of things that we're talking about. So giving these kinds of metrics while taking into account all these privacy and other issues, that's kind of the key thing that our platform offers. Okay. So let's just take this back to a fundamental level. What are the issues that lead to data being inaccurate? Like what are the bigger ones you encounter? I mean, I, I've seen any number of weird things like, you know, they recorded... <laughs> company just decides to start recording different information in different columns and never really fixes the old stuff. Like, so all this stuff that the challenges to cleaning this data and getting clean data, what are the biggest ones? So the first simple one is manual human errors. Uh, very rarely yeah. in the modern systems, manual errors creep in. However, in legacy applications and systems, the kind of protections they had in those older applications wasn't as good. So manual errors can mm -hmm. happen, right? So Sometimes people may mistype an account name, uh, might actually, you know, miss something in a name, you know, or in various things. You know, if you think about attributes of a trade or a transaction, there could be lots and lots of fields, parameters to enter, and there could be errors that could keep, keep it. So one is just sort of human errors and being able to sift and catch against these human errors. The second one is a little tricky. It is different systems work differently. And I'll give you a practical example to illustrate the challenge. In many people in real world face this challenge. You buy music in Apple iTunes and you've downloaded the Apple iTunes music and then you want to play it on your, say, your Google Home speaker. It's near <laughs> impossible, okay? And the reason for it is that they actually belong to two different ecosystems. Apple yeah. has their own ecosystem. They have their own licensing model and their own encryption model and copyright models. And to actually cross across this chasm 
is very difficult. Uh, they do say, hey, we have licensed it to you. you get, you're free to use it anywhere, but it is very, very hard. And we well, anywhere has got an asterisk next to it, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they tell you that. They, they, they make sure that if you're in their ecosystem, you can only stay in their ecosystem and you'll have to you know, share your photographs this way, that way. Everything is hard, right? So this practical problem exists even today in the modern, absolutely new system. Now imagine data stored in an original COBOL system, as you mentioned, or a Photon system, or a, a modern application today, which is built, built in Web 2.0. They all represent the same data in different ways. For example, something as simple as a timestamp, which means something happened at a certain period in time. So you actually put time in some kind of a 24-hour format. And then you say day, month, year. When I say day, month, year, you already know the problem, right? In many places- yeah. they, month, they, day, year, month, year, month, month, day. There's so yeah. many coordinates. Yeah, there's already- you know, Then they yeah. say year is two letters or, or is it four? And is it, is, it, is it represented in text? Is it represented in, yeah. in data type? So this kind of data type mismatch is the biggest problem, right? In data quality. So one system is trying to talk to another system. They both represent data, all kinds of data. I just explained one simple thing. Everything is represented differently in computer systems and software systems over time, over 40, 50 years of uh, computer science, 60, 70 years. Things have actually evolved. But banks are actually using systems that are from 40 years old as well. Yeah. Old as well. From before I was born, <laughs> there were some systems that were being built. They represented data at that time in ways that were optimal for those systems. And of course, networking came about, internet came about, mobile came about, and there are new and better ways of representing data for these new things. The old systems are not representing data this way. And when you actually try to match the two, there's all kinds of issues that come up, corner cases, other things that come up. And this is the biggest cost of data quality. So these are the two. The, the human error part, in my mind at least, is a much smaller problem. The larger problem is this data interface, data standards, data interchange formats are just foundationally different. And this creates a nightmare. And so when you try to import some data into some new application, it just doesn't work like the old application because it's represented in a different way. It's thinking it's different. And even some, some simple things, you know, when names are capitalized and entered versus in some cases, they're entered all in lowercase. In some cases, they're entered in what's called camel case, mixed upper and lower cases. These changes are tremendously complex to deal with because is Jason spelt one way, is it the same yes. as, as, as the other one? And it, it looks obvious to a human, but to a computer, if it's not identical and not represented identically, it doesn't know what to do. You have to train it. So those are the yep, kind it's, of- it's, Yeah, first off, I always find it amusing that humans are always the weakest link in just about any chain. But yeah, I mean, it seems, you, know, you think to yourself like, wow, if you just come up with standard protocols for how you're supposed to enter in dates and timestamps and everything else, right? Like it would, life would be so much easier now. But you know, in hindsight- <laughs> We don't really worry about these things. We do the convenient thing. So yeah, so you go in, you go in, you basically clean this all up. Feedback. So what are the 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 clients telling you that you're getting back? Like how, like is this just like a a massive like liberation to them? Like I'm guessing you go in and you you're pretty much going to be entrenched there for a long time, is what it sounds like. Yes. So to the first order, these problems have been long-standing problems in the financial industry. So mm -hmm. when you go and offer a solution, they're very happy. Now, they're very specifically looking for solutions to some of the new challenges that they're facing. I'll give you an example of a challenge they're facing. Okay? In financial institutions, there is a new regulatory mandate that originally came from Europe, and it's just kind of coming on board, and it's called CSDR. So it's four-letter acronym. What does that mean? They love their acronyms for regulation over there, but continue. That's right. But, but what is this specific regulatory requirement? for 
Well, let's say there are two banks. Let's say, for example, they're JP Morgan and Citi. And uh, JP Morgan and Citi on a given day would do a lot of transactions with each other simply because the clients of JP Morgan are sending money to the clients of uh, Citi in, and back and forth, right? So all kinds of trades and, and money transfer and asset exchange are happening mediated by the bank. Now, it so happens that banks on a nightly basis have to actually submit to their regulator, uh, and there's lots of regulators, their book position. So on a nightly basis, JP Morgan has to say, our books are all clean. We've made sure that everything is, our credits and debits are all matching on a nightly basis because banks are the underpinning of the financial system. If you don't know where your money is, then you will know what to do with it. And and banks are actually responsible for maintaining everybody's money. So so this is sort of the, the thing. Now, what CSDR basically comes and says is that now banks had a provision that said, well, 99.9% of those transactions, we actually had a resolution or 99% of the transactions, we had resolution. But a small chunk of them, we have exceptions and uh, we are waiting to figure out what these exceptions are about. We don't know what they are. We'll investigate over the next two, three days and wrap it. And regulators were quite okay with this model, right? For a while, because, uh, you know, having perfection was very, very difficult. Now, what this resulted was that over a course of time, these unknown things would show up in the bank balance sheets as sort of unresolved things. And this obviously- the rounding error shows up on the side. Yes, there we right, go. Right? Yeah. So it adds risk, right, to the banks. And this risk is unknown because you have no idea what it is. And banks would, in some fashion, bury a lot of their risk in this, in this unknown category, right? And then suddenly, when you open up the bank balance sheets, when regulators come in, they would actually kind of be shocked. They'd say, my God, there's billions of dollars in here, and I don't know what the liability here is, right? And so- Actually, 2008 financial crisis itself was partly created by this Mm -hmm. kind of accounting standard. So what CSDR says is that on a given day, if you have some amount of exceptions, you have to pay a fine to the regulator, which is a proportion of the value of the exceptions that you're declaring. So now on the first day, if you have X amount of exceptions, you have to pay X amount of fine. On the second day, the same exception stands, you have to pay double the fine and so on. So it was the regulation was created so that you can create an incentive for banks to not have any exception and re- therefore reduce their risk. So this is the new regulatory thing for CSDR. This is the simplest way I can explain CSDR uh, for our listeners. And obviously, this is quite complex. I mean, a lot of this is, is data related. I mean, exceptions, that's what I was calling you about, data quality and process integrity issues. So you have to identify across millions, sometimes billions of trades and billions of objects and make sure that everything is actually correctly matching. And this is where data quality comes in. And so what is it that our clients are expecting from us? They're expecting us to solve these kinds of problems. And that is exactly what the Cuneiform platform solves. So you're correct. Once we're in, it's a very long sale, very sticky sale. But obviously, you can imagine these are difficult problems to solve. Right? Not only do you have to connect to legacy systems, but you have to solve the latest and greatest regulatory challenge and the entire workflow for it. That's what we do. So then once that has been done and people's data situation is now magically miraculously solved. <laughs> you're magic. Um, Yes, exactly. Talk to me about how this empowers future innovation within the firm. See, one of the challenges in how have banks and all these other large legacy financial institutions been functioning so far, right? One way to solve this problem is to actually throw a lot of humans at the problem. So if you've noticed in the last 20 years- Surprise, that's what they've done. (laughs) That's right. And, and, And so you've heard many times that large financial institutions are amongst the largest users of external system integrators and software outsourcing firms in the planet. And what ends up is that they have outsourced a vast amount of work, for example, to India, to Eastern Europe, to the Far East, in many places, thousands, tens of thousands of people in each of these locations, yeah? 
in why do they have these people and locations? Well, they have them because each of these data quality issues today is solved in a semi-manual or in a fully manual way. So they actually give large reports to people and people are looking at columns of rows and numbers and checking and verifying and doing all of this stuff. This is what's called middle and back office work in a financial mm-hmm. industry. Now, this kind of work is very IT centric. And so over the last 20 years, where banks have spent most of their money and budget is in, in this kind of IT, outsourcing and trying to figure out how to actually work with all these third-party outsourcing houses and do it. With our platform, what we're actually coming in and saying is, hey, I know you have this existing process that's very people-centric. That itself creates new problems and privacy and other challenges. So we're coming and giving you an automated platform that helps you get rid of that problem. While at the same time, we empower your business users. Your business users are the people who are really trying to put on your new operations, workflows, your new business models, your new revenue generating models, your new services. Rather than go and try and develop code from scratch by writing requirements and your IT guys going and then implementing that using software, why don't we build a platform that automatically generates this code for you? So we call ourselves a zero code platform where Mm -hmm. business users can come in and actually set up these entire workflows by just dragging and dropping some stuff on the screen. And it creates this entire big data platform, which does all of the data quality and process integrity checks for you and all of these metrics and how to take action. That's fantastic. You're doing no code to the end user. And for those of you who don't know, low code and no code are bigger trends in the industry altogether, where basically they're trying to lower the bar for barrier for entry into just developing your own solutions, right? The average person is not gonna sit back and learn code. Even myself, I can't code myself out of a paper bag, but I have taken boot camps and webinars in no code platforms that have allowed me to actually build actual solutions for my business with basically the less knowledge than someone takes a first year computer science degree would, have, would require and the ability to drag and drop. It's really, it's, it's remarkable what you can get done these days. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm commend you for that. That's fantastic. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right there, Jason. That was a great, uh, great uh, sort of an introduction into low-code, zero-code platforms. And that's exactly what we do. The mm-hmm. idea is that business users already have many other challenging requirements today to meet. And the tool allows them to automate a lot of the work. So in one sense, the trend in the industry is to automatically start writing software itself for you. Instead of actually having to write code, uh, you use tools that can write software for you now. So that's yeah. the next level of AI. And that's what uh, the, the Pianova platform is all about. Yeah, I mean, you drop an object into something, you, you say, I want to do this, and suddenly... All these lines of code, conditional that one, so those two selections suddenly are populated, right? Like that is when you know, it, it boggles the mind. I mean, for any, anyone who's got the experience or has at least seen commercials for Squarespace or Wix, right? Same basic premise. It's you need to build something, you need to build a program, you need to build an application, to build a website, whatever it is. But the level of coding now has gone to the point where you do not need to code. It is, is quite hilarious. In fact, one of my buddies is a programmer, you know, had famous, well, has several teachers to say code monkey on them. And I, I, I was, I was going to I, I keep on thinking about how I need to troll him one day with a no code monkey t-shirt. Because now I feel. That is a trend, by the way. And, and you're on to yeah. it. In my humble opinion, and we see many, yeah. many technology trends having worked in the technology industry now for all my career for, uh, you know, nearly 30 years. My claim, at least, is that this is the next major trend in the industry. It's, I think it's the next major trend, trend everywhere. And everywhere. honestly, I'm, it, it might, it may be by the time that this airs, that the article I've been planning on, the no-code revolution, might be on my blog by now. If it is, check it out. If not, just subscribe and it'll eventually show up. But the I want to finish a couple of, of developments myself before I actually write the thing. But I mean, when you think about all the incredibly 
crazy wonderful things that we have had come to fruition in since the computer was invented and all the unbelievably useful apps and functions that we have today. And think about how that was generated by a subset of the population and how no code will expand to permit a much larger set of the population to come up with a concept and with very little training, be able to at least bring it to a test stage where they can actually test it in a live environment. Like how much more innovation are we going to see happen in the next couple of decades? Because the, the barrier to entry on coding has been dropped to drag and drop. Absolutely. Crazy. And, uh, and the core software people are all building these kinds of tools now. So we call this tooling yeah. and plumbing, right? Once you yeah. do tooling and plumbing with the core engineers, you're right. You open it up for the entire population who's not interested necessarily in writing code in Python or Java or something, but all of that is auto-generated for them with these tools that have been incredible tools that have been created. Yeah, no, it's a very exciting time in, in the coding world. So basically, before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody, and this has been informative. I hope everyone got all through the uh, some, of the, some of what is possible. Before I before I wrap up the three questions, I'm going to say this much. the What you're doing is so foundational to the success of, of being able to build what comes next on those no-code platforms. I'm, I'm glad you connected both of those, right? The, the data management is one thing, but then empowering people to then take that data harness and innovate is, is just something... So much more powerful. So well done there. So the three questions I ask everybody. First one, if you have one wish for something you can change in the industry or your company or world as a whole, what would it be? Well, I think for the financial services industry specifically, I believe mm -hmm. that the model of onboarding new vendors, right? Uh, a new fintech company, for example, to be, become a supplier to a large vendor, let's say Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or Citi, is still fairly cumbersome. And uh, I believe that if I had to kind of go and suggest one change for a lot of these folks that are focused on digital transformation, that's one change I would recommend, which is how do you actually sort of enable smaller companies like us uh, to be onboarded much faster rather than sort of relying on old school vendor management, contract negotiating, taking nine months to actually claim that it signs to sign a contract. Those are those seem like archaic and arcane practices today. And so I, I would recommend I, well, I, that's one change I would like to sort of in some fashion wish and mandate upon the industry. I am I am with you on that. It's funny. I'm I'm well known for um, flipping the narrative. So as a financial advisor, a lot of financial advisors have basically when you start talking about robo advisors, they get venomous about the entire thing. And I have basically written articles in the past that said, "Are you kidding me? They 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 fixed something. Like they've shown us that it doesn't have to be." a 50 page stack of paper processed by 40 people or God knows how long in three days to open an account and fund it. Like, are you kidding me? These people cracked the code. We should be thanking them for this and then copying everything. <laughs> like that's the reality of it. So it's amazing to think about like how in financials and everything else in this world, it's like, I have money. I want to give you money for this service. And that is a frictionless transaction. If I'm buying a slice of pizza or if I'm buying it, almost if I'm buying a car, like just gets bigger, gets more expensive. But when it comes to like, I have money, I want to give it to you just to hold on to. No, 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 hold on. You gotta fill out some paperwork. You gotta give it to us in three days, you'll have access, then it's cool. Like, really, this is where we are? Yeah. So Really, really, yes. It's, uh, I mentioned COBOL earlier because COBOL is a running joke in my podcast because for guys like you, it's like, I'm sure you, every time you see a COBOL, so you're like, deep breath. Okay, we're going to move people, forward. People uh, say things like that. We just kind of like smile, roll our eyes and say, there they go again. Oh, what's always funny is when people discover are in the industry and they first discover, wait, I, wait their servers are all, all running like COBOL or, COBOL or Fortran? Like, what's going on? Like, this is ridiculous. I'm like, oh, you think this is not normal. Like, that's, that's cute. You think it's not normal. Anyway, so second question, what has been the biggest challenge again to come to where it is today? Well, I think um, 
one of the things that I can kind of state is that we start off with a very technology centric story. And I did not go very deep into the technology background of this company. When we start off, blockchain uh, was very hard. So, you know, one of the core underpinnings of sort of our, our technology platform is, is blockchains. We were very inspired by ideas in blockchain. It's a data platform, but uh, it's very inspired by some of the ideas in blockchain, uh, particularly with respect to verification and validation entirely using mathematical techniques and replacing humans from there. Not because we don't like humans. It's just like it's error free. And, and that's the only idea here. We like the people here. They, so, no one ever grows up wanting to push paper. Okay, I'll tell you that much. No one ever says, fair. you know what that's I really fair. want to do? I want to administer in a back office on an enterprise legacy terminal. No one goes to school saying that, okay? So, so let's just hope we can free up people from that type of drudgery. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a great way to put it. And that's a nice perspective to have on it. But the thing that uh, sort of uh, was important for us as a, as a team and as a company to learn was that the technology-centric story would only take you so far. We had to actually understand an end-to-end problem that we could solve with this particular technology and then package the technology in such a way that it can be consumed by the relevant users in this industry. In this case, middle and back office business operations, product folks in a large financial institution. They are wanting to consume their stuff in some way and use things in some way, right? And mm-hmm. Cryptography or blockchain or something else is noise. They would like it. They'd like to know that their their sort of software had it, maybe. But at the end of the day, it has to do what it what they want it to do. And and so the hardest part was making a transition from being a technology company focused on a technology story, being still a technology company but solving a real business problem uh, for clients within the fintech space. So that was the the growth that we had to go to and go through. Because all of us were very enthusiastic with blockchain and and sort of led with that message as opposed to leading with, hey, what's the problem? Data quality, process integrity, that's the problem. Let me now figure out how to solve this end-to-end in your existing applications rather than tell you, get rid of everything, use Bitcoin, and life would be simple. It might be for some corner use cases, but not for everyday use across all the existing and and the rest of the fintech space, right? I mean, it's Mm -hmm. a broader philosophical conversation that you can see how hard that transition could be for a technology-centric startup team. Excellent. So last question for you. What excites you the most about what it is you're working on and gets you up every morning to continue to fight the good fight? One of the things that's very exciting for me is the sheer impact that we can provide to a space that people just take it for granted, banking, financial services. This actually is the underpinning of the global economy. And as we worked on it, we realized how much of the rest of the economy rely on you know, the financial plumbing and financial systems to work seamlessly. So being able to make that system far better, easier, less friction, with less friction, frictionless, and uh, enabling some brand new services uh, using some very cool technology from the Bitcoin blockchain world is uh, what sort of uh, motivates me the most. We all in abstract talk about Bitcoin and Bitcoin price being at whatever, 13,000 today and 14,000 today. Oh, it was 6,000 yesterday and this and that. But we That sounds about the right volatility. Yeah, that's about right. That's right. <laughs> and But here we are taking uh, some underpinnings and inspiration from the technology, but having built mm-hmm. a foundational problem in the financial plumbing itself. So that kind of gives me a great deal of satisfaction to know it's a large market. We have a big impact in we're using some of the latest, coolest things that people are uh, still trying to figure out what they are. Excellent. Well, Gangesh, thank you very much for your time. Very much appreciated. Uh, this was, uh, this was an, I did not expect to go in the no-code realm, so it was nice to pair those two together because, frankly, they are joined at the hip, quite honestly, data quality and, and being able to facilitate no-code, quite honestly. We can, you, you don't have to have them joined at the hip. 
but it's so much more powerful when you have a, a clean data set that you can you can play off of. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jason. It was great to be on the show and uh, very great to hear some of your insights and uh, really appreciate all the work you're doing in this area, uh, data management, data quality, and overall data. So great to be on the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Take care. So that was my interview with Gangesh at Pure Nova. I hope you enjoyed that. And hopefully by the time this airs, my article on no code will have actually been written. If not, it will be coming out shortly. But I am serious. That is, to me, the most revolutionary trend in technology is the ability for people with no knowledge of code to build their own stuff. Just start dreaming things up, people. Start playing around because you can stop waiting for other people to solve your problems for you now. And as always, uh, this has been FinTech Impact, and I'm your host, Jason Pereira. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.